you're on with Lauren Zayu for Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, a show about what you say, how you say it, and what to do after it's said. We'll talk about communications and messaging blunders, successes, distractions, and what all of it means for you. Join me for a crash course in what you need to know in politics and issues driving the 2020 elections. Hello and welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. I'm your host, Lauren Zayu. I want to open this conversation by saying initially this panel was gathered in response to the town hall style second presidential debate between President Trump and Vice President Joe Biden. However, after hosting a super spreader event for COVID-19, being diagnosed with COVID-19 himself and hospitalized, and a healthy portion of his senior administration officials being diagnosed with COVID-19, President Trump decided to not participate in a virtual debate with Vice President Joe Biden and instead hosted a competing town hall on another network. But for what it's worth, there's no reason to make a good panel go to waste. I'm really excited for this conversation, and I do think it will be a good one. Keeping that in mind, I would like to note that this panel is all male, and that's not an attempt to limit voices, chalk it up to scheduling, and I will do my best to make sure that it never happens again. I do, however, think you're in for a treat and you'll really enjoy what they have to say. Keeping that in mind, I would like to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, Lawrence Hull, AJ Simonton, and Will Brummett. How are you? Good evening. It's hey. It's a hot October. Um, Alrighty, if we just want to open up with who you are, what you do, uh, kind of your interest in being here, we'll start with Lawrence. Sure. Um, so my name is Lawrence Hall. I'm a global trade and compliance attorney here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, CFIUS, export control sanctions, everything going on with TikTok and Huawei and the fight with China is like my, you know, day-to-day early mornings, late nights, it's a lot, you know, policy by tweet is a, a different sort of regulatory environment. We did not learn that in law school. Um, so tell by accent, I'm originally from the United Kingdom, uh, proud South, South London, uh, born to West Indian parents and, and grew up there. Um, and then when I was 18, got bored and went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, um, where I met Lauren and, and AJ and um, Lauren, I think we actually might have met at a mutual friend's wedding or something like that. So, yes, it's a, it's a whole story, but um, Lauren has been one of those people who's been like killing it in the background and very much glad to uh, be here on the show with you. Um, I'd be remiss if I did not say I went to Harvard Law School, but I think that, you know, now we just need a dumb rocket scientist because of Ted Cruz. We know Harvard Law doesn't really mean much. Because uh, of Ben Carson, we know brain surgery doesn't mean much. So uh, just need one more for the trifecta. So that's it for me. All right. Thanks for being here, Lawrence. AJ? Uh, well, don't forget Kaylee McEnany, too, <laughs> Lawrence. <laughs> um, I'm AJ Simonton. I'm an attorney. I'm born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
Um, graduated from Morehouse College with a degree in political science, um, like half of my law school class. Uh, went to Notre Dame Law School, uh, graduated uh, just less than a year ago, last May. And so I've been practicing civil litigation for the past, uh, well, it's not a couple months, but several months. Um, and so I'm still kind of getting up to speed. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's been an interesting time to be a Notre Dame alum uh, with uh, our professor, Amy Barrett, being nominated. Uh, I've gotten a lot of <laughs> texts from, uh, from liberal friends who <laughs> uh, are a bit concerned. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, my experience at Notre Dame and, and uh, sharing some thoughts about Professor Barrett. Oh, uh, and uh, very much appreciate being uh, on the show. And, and you thinking of me, Lauren. Uh, Lauren, I think you were one of the first people I met um, in the AU Center um, back in the day, 2010. <laughs> we definitely met early freshman year. I do yeah. remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have you, AJ. Will? Hi, everyone. I'm Will Brummett. Um, my day job and profession is I work with college students at the intersection of civic engagement and social activism and community service. Uh, and I work currently for George Washington University and their Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service. Uh, and so I've spent basically my whole career, the last seven to eight years, uh, trying to work alongside 18 to 22 year olds uh, in the intersection between mobilizing them in the community, but also listening and prioritizing community voice uh, and, and particularly in this election season, community vote. Um, I'm born and raised from a small town, Jefferson City, Tennessee, which is in the heart of Appalachia in East Tennessee. So you will, will hear me say some words that you probably don't pronounce the same way. Uh, but I'm proud of that, proud of coming from there. I went to my university was Elon University in North Carolina, where I studied the intersection of religious studies and political science. And then I later got my master's degree in community development. Um, I'm super excited to be here. Uh, moving to D.C., we just moved about a year ago, my partner Grace and I, and uh, Lauren was the first person I met in D.C. who was like, let me, uh, who I could talk politics with. And my partner Grace is not very political. And so she would just send me off to Lauren to like talk about the election, talk about the debate. Um, and so I've, I've long been a fan of Lauren's brilliance and the way she thinks about things. And I'm privileged to go to uh, Elijah and Lauren's church as well in D.C. So I'm super excited, really excited to learn from Lawrence and A.J. I'm super glad we have two lawyers on this call because... Uh, but it's some interesting legal times we're in. So yeah, that I'll kick it back to you, Lauren. Uh, yeah, I definitely think interesting is one way to describe them. Um, legal is another is interesting word to use. But keeping that in mind, uh, since we're already on legalities, let's transition to the Supreme Court hearings that were happening this week. Um, they, I believe, were Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and today. Um, so even even Thursday. Uh, Obviously partisan, obviously there were some issues, but I'm going to kind of start with there's been um, prior to even the hearings, there was this conversation around court packing. Right. And because we have two lawyers on the call, I kind of want to take a second to say, like, one, what is court packing if it's an actual thing? And two, like, is it is it the big, scary monster that it's been purported to be? Well, uh, first, I would like to say it's probably more of a political issue um, at this point than a legal issue. Um, the Constitution provides for a Supreme Court. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the the ways in which the uh, court acts 
uh, is governed by laws that are passed by Congress. And so Congress can, um, they can add uh, justices or seats um, to the Supreme Court and they can remove them. They just can't remove uh, a sitting judge. Um, and so um, at the Supreme Court level, uh, there's been talks about adding to that uh, body. Um, and I don't like to use the term court packing, right? To me, uh, we are talking about balancing the court, right? Because if you look back at who's appointed judges, uh, it's been folks who, presidents who uh, haven't won a uh, popular vote. They don't have a mandate to govern. Um, and, you know, the most recent of which has a, uh, has been impeached. And so uh, that certainly affects, I think, the legitimacy of the court and the ways in which it's perceived um, by Americans and citizens. Yeah, um, to follow on from that, I guess what we've seen, um, and I noticed um, um, soon to be Vice President Harris actually mentioned this at the vice presidential debates, is almost this idea of taking the idea of court packing beyond the packing, so to speak. So really seeing it as a um, spectrum of extra legal political measures um, that really affect the nature of the federal bench. Because when we're talking about the makeup of the Supreme Court and we're talking about the ability to um, dismiss justices and the fact that they serve for life as a supposed bulwark against physical interference, you know, I think now when we talk about court packing, you have to take into account all these other measures. And um, really the logjam that was the um, approval process of appointing federal justices, um, particularly through the Obama administration. And now you've seen what we've seen happen is that the federal bench, um, and I don't think it's controversial to say this, because right, I think the ABA would agree with me on this, is that you have frankly, unqualified jurists on the bench now who are making decisions. And yes, you know, as a, as a, as a corporate lawyer, and I know uh, my colleagues would agree with me in railing against federal court decisions, but I think there's a difference between justices who you may disagree with and justices who you think are fundamentally unqualified for the position. So what you've seen within the Trump administration is plenty of these hacks, frankly, being put on the bench. And it's deeply ironic now that you have um, someone like likely soon to be Justice Barrett, who's actually like an able, qualified, talented jurist who, you know, maybe should have stuck to her principles and stuck to her path as a, as a principal jurist and said, you know what, this is, this is not the right time to to, to be stepping up to the bench in these sorts of circumstances. And, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think that would have really harmed her interest long-term. And um, especially when you look at the, the state of the federal bench and how appointments have been happening. I think that's a really good point, particularly, uh, and well, I'm interested to have you weigh in on this politically because the federal uh, judiciary has been, you know, uh, as uh, Lawrence was referencing Senator Harris's statement, has been flooded with conservative judges. And it's interesting to see the way that ends up playing out because something that happened is in the voter suppression efforts that have been happening nationwide, uh, whether it was, you know, 
trying to stifle the postal service or limiting or, or putting up decoy ballot boxes. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas ended up saying one box per county, including, again, somewhere like Harris County, which hosts Houston, Texas, I believe it's the fourth largest city in the country, um, something around like five million people live there. And and they're saying one one voting drop off for that county. And so there was this hurrah when a federal judge said, no, you can't do that. But then three federal judges came um, back and said, actually, it's completely and totally fine. And so when we are realizing now the implication of these judges and what they can do, can we talk about what it looks like for Republicans to have filled these lifetime positions with with people who will appear to um, weigh in even on political matters? Yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think the thing that I think about first off is just when thinking about the last, particularly the last six years under Mitch McConnell's, uh, I wouldn't call it leadership, I'd just call it his reign, um, is that we, I think it's point for Democrats also really to know politically that this has been intentional and it's been in the books for 20 to 30 years, the long-term game, to completely change the federal bench and also state Supreme Court level benches as well. Um, and so I think for me on political thing, it's not the question of is it legal, but was it strategic? Um, and for Democrats, the question becomes, we haven't done as good of a job thinking maybe since the 60s or 70s, we haven't really done a good job thinking about how do we fight for or to maintain the bench on a federal or state level. And so I think from McConnell's completely ignoring any Obama federal bench uh, appointee, like I think it's like 28% he, he passed or considered his last two years. And it's like by far the lowest um, the last few presidencies to then them changing the rule around we're not going to listen to Merrick Garland Poor Merrick Garland, pour him a drink wherever he's at right now in D.C. Um, but I think so now the question becomes, it's not surprising what they did politically. But the question for me now becomes if the Senate does actually does flip, which it looks like it may. Then what is the strategic and also the, the smart response for Democrats to play outside of the immediate short term? And so I think the question I have is for particularly Lawrence AJ is do you feel like court packing or court expansion or, or um, balancing the judiciary is a smart short-term or long-term move for the Democrats, because I think ultimately, uh, for me, the question becomes, if it's perhaps done too soon or too abruptly, would this lead to backfire? Just like Harry Reid's decision to get rid of the nuclear option ended up backfiring um, where we're at now. So I think for me, those are the things, it's like it's, it's strategic, it's been planned, it's going, a power shift is now happening, and now the question becomes, what's the strategic move for Democrats? Um, or maybe strategy shouldn't be played, but anyway, I'd be curious what everyone else has to say. I mean, if I could just jump off, I mean, there's a whole thing about, you know, you know, little bit of animal cruelty. Like if you put a frog in water and then heat up the water, at, you know, at what stage does the frog jump out and be, you know, before it gets boiled? I, I think part of what happens here is that we have to recognize how broken um, rule of law is right now and how broken norms are right now. And so, Ironically, even though it has spectacularly backfired, um, Harry Reid's move with the nuclear option was probably the right thing to do long term. And earlier actions like that, when um, Democrats recognized that um, norms no longer mattered, when it became, you know, so you have this artificial idea of the neutral arbiter and the neutral Supreme Court and how to 
balance natural biases, how to balance that and, and, and move forward. And I think as sad as that is, we are fast approaching a point where that equilibrium is going to be broken. There's only so many times where you're going to have a Chief Justice Roberts, um, you know, look back at the, what the history books might say at his actions and take an unexpected uh, jump uh, across the line, the political lines on a 5-4. Um, and so I think when you're facing an opponent that um, has so little regard for the rule of law, when you're facing an opponent that has so little regard for norms, when you're facing an opponent that has so little regard for political legitimacy, quite frankly, I think you have to stop worrying about the optics and just do the right thing for, frankly, your ideological goals in the future. And I think for all the criticisms we've had of the Republicans and, and the GOP, they have very clearly decided that if we are going to achieve these certain goals for the long-term health of our ideology, and I do believe that they genuinely think that to mold a conservative country in in their image, that they have to take these, you know, frankly reprehensible actions in terms of rules or in terms of norms in order to get where they want to be. And so I think you can only play nice for so long, you can only tolerate intolerance for so long. And I think frankly, um I don't want to sound Trumpian here, but I don't think the media has done a good job at recognizing how broken the norms are. And so when you look at the debate, when when you talk about court packing in the implicit derisive term, um, as the moderator, whose name I can't remember now, from the vice presidential debate, refer to it as as if it just happens in a vacuum and it's not a response to something horrific. No, that's that's really upsetting. And the last thing is, this isn't FDR era court packing we're talking about here. This isn't a you know a leftist conspiracy to get their way because some legislation you like is getting blocked by Supreme Court. This is you know we are sitting at what we hope is the bottom of the well here. You know how do we get back up and and get out? I definitely want to take some time and talk about the norms that have been um, honestly eradicated. Uh, one, because I do think there is a great deal of conflating in the media and therein in the understanding of the general public of norms versus rules, right? So there's this, I, I think a lot of things that we were under the opinion or I was under the impression were rules were actually norms. And so when they did show up to be broken, there's also no disciplinary process in place. There was this like, oh, our entire country has effectively operated on like a gentleman's agreement, right? Like, <laughs> oh, we don't do that. And then you met someone who definitely does that. And so what do you do um, as as a country when you're dealing with leadership like that? And I actually think it transitions really well into our second segment of Hold Up in that uh, prior to, I mean, the last two weeks, if it was two weeks, um, I'd never heard of an attempted kidnapping of a sitting government official 
definitely not a governor of a swing state in an election year. And for it to have gotten as far advanced as the FBI to intervene, like I, I imagine that public figures, you know, maybe get threats for various things, but for the FBI to intervene and for them to say that this was a plot that was foiled in Michigan and in Virginia, both states that are really important to the election at large, two fairly high profile governors um, attempting to be kidnapped and, and done God knows what with I is a violation of a norm and several rules should be. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like first impressions upon hearing the news and also what type of foreshadowing that could mean for election night and even in the days following weeks following. Well, uh, my quick thought is, and I don't have uh, a lot to share on this topic, but is, was anyone really surprised? <laughs> I remember hearing about this and I'm just thinking like, eh, like, I, I mean, obviously very terrible uh, and, and something that um, uh, is disheartening uh, as one who, uh, has high hopes for this country. Um, but I mean, time and time again, over the past four years, and I'll say even even uh, greater than the past four years since uh, President Trump first started running for office, um, his behavior has been normalized and his words, his violent words have been normalized and they have an effect. Um, you see an increase in um, right-wing extremism um, and, and that's not entirely on him, um, but it, it, he hasn't done what traditionally uh, a, a president has done, which is to bring us together uh, when there are certain events. Um, I mean, when you look back at the Obama uh, presidency, there are certain events that occur where there's tragedy, but you also have the president of the United States speaking responsibly and urging cooler heads to prevail and for folks to come together. And so I think that's something that we're definitely missing. Um, and it's unfortunate. I, I don't know how you, um, how we move forward. And I'm, I'm quite fearful of, you know, what happens uh, if uh, the polls are correct and it's not even close and he leaves office. Um, can we count on him to act responsibly um, after the election's over? And he's been asked um, about that transfer of power, should it happen? And he hasn't given an answer that um, has been you know, responsible or conducive to that norm um, that's been established of the, uh, the one, the, the candidate who doesn't win, um, affirmatively reaching out um, and acknowledging defeat. Um, and I think that's certainly scary. I mean, you already see uh, the effects on the streets of people uh, counter-protesting with, with weapons and intimidating protesters. Um, and uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, America has had enough and that we're going to make the right decision uh, on election day, but I'm also fearful uh, of the backlash. And quite frankly, it's backlash from having the first uh, black president, I think uh, certainly has a lot to do with it. And um, this grievance policies, or I'm sorry, the, these, this grievance politics is not going to end with Donald Trump.
Fair point. Um, I, I so I I'm torn on a couple fronts, right? One is so I uh, was initially very frustrated with the news, <laughs> primarily because the visual I have is that these are um, gun toting, probably arrest resistant old white men, and all of them are taken in alive as they actively uh, fight or, or attempt to overthrow a sitting governor, right? And on the heels of a summer like the one we had, chock full of black people killed for minding their business in their own homes, going for jogs in these other spaces. It's frustrating to think that, that even when white people are demonstrably dangerous with pure intention laid bare, there is, there is not the same response to that that there is to black people minding their business. The second thing was that I was, and maybe I should have thought about this. So one, Virginia is where Charlottesville happened. And we know that Charlottesville was a coordinated attack. And so Michigan and Virginia, um, both having attempts on their governors, to me said that there is a larger coordination happening that I think alarms me a bit more than if these events had been isolated. Um, and so for them to be governors of swing states and high profile, um, it, 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 that was what was primarily concerning for me. I do think uh, this also, because we can't, you know, we have to acknowledge all of these things work together. This is on the heels of the Proud Boys comments, right? This is on the heels of a, well, this is including a, a president who, to AJ's point, has stoked violence literally since he stepped on stage in 2015. Um, and so it's uh, it's it definitely feels like a tension um, leading to a, a culmination point that, like, I honestly think win or lose on election night will happen um, is, is kind of where I am. Will, you look like you had something to say? You know, I, I just agree with you. I think, again, going to on a different point, this has been strategic and happening in coordinated and both coordinated and isolated cells for a long time in terms of right wing militias, also right wing white supremacist groups um, acting in coordinated effort. Um, and I think the the easy thing to do is read the scene and headline and sort of laugh at it. I mean, they call themselves the Wolverines Watchmen. Their plan was to dress up as a pizza delivery guy with three bullets in their gun, kidnap her, and put her on a boat in Lake Michigan, according to the court hearings today. That was the plan. They're going to hold her for treason, ship her on a boat in Lake Michigan, and, and then that was that. Um, but it's also coordinated as concern because if you read a little bit deeper, it was also that they said that they were FBI's been monitoring five different states where this was potentially being coordinated. Um, and also, like you said, Lauren, looking at the Proud Boys and everything else that's been going on is that uh, unfortunately, this is this is not new, and it is scary, and and it's getting to the point um, where President Trump has no. Actually, I would say it is conscious and it is deliberate. Of like he, in a, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, he literally tweeted like "Liberate Michigan," and then today, when talking about Governor Whitmer, he literally said she's a dictator of Michigan. So, for a certain group of individuals who believe that their state completely is being overrun, and they have the means and the ends to try to organize to remove her, then that's um, they're using Trump's inspiration example to follow to do that. Um, thank goodness the FBI um, did their job and did well infiltrating and stopping them. But I think it's interesting that like um, when you have the, when the Trump administration's own FBI director talks about well, the biggest domestic terrorism threat is typically right wing militias. 
and we had over a, I didn't realize this, but when reading about this today, we have over a hundred different arrests last year for domestic terrorism plots alone, over a hundred. Right. And we think about the disproportional response that happened particularly towards black and brown communities and Muslim communities after nine 11. And then we like let white men off the hook completely. We're like, Oh, they're just exhibiting their second amendment rights and boys will be boys or whatever it may be. And it's concerning. And, and I think, um, I think it's just something that people need to be vigilant. One thing that's interesting is Georgetown Law recently released, um, uh, I was on a call where they released a state-by-state -state guidelines about the legal limits of militias and what they can or cannot do. And the difference between your Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and then also what's actually classified as a militia in your state. And they were doing this merely to let people know at polling stations and everywhere else where people may be standing back or standing by or watching the polls to know what people if they're there, what their legal rights are and what they are actually aren't. And so they can report them. Um, and so I think it, it's a sad era that we're in, but surprisingly very intentional. It's been long running. And I think people, we need to be smart and, uh, and, and we need to be observant of what the limits are. And then also when hopefully they do cross that line, uh, they're held accountable. Um, and like you said, Lauren, I think it is really sad that uh, 14 different white men have been charged and they've all been brought in and held harmless. And then, uh, we have people who are just, um, yeah, profiled or suspicious, you know, deemed suspicious, and then they get shot and killed in their homes. So um, it's unjust, definitely reality. Um, but unfortunately, the thing we can do right now is just is be aware um, as best we can. Yeah. I'd also add that one of perhaps the craziest thing about this is that basically for as long as the FBI has been tracking it, they've always been worried about white supremacist violence. And so, you know, I remember going to the, um, at the depot at the FBI headquarters and we had a talk from an FBI agent. And we were talking to him about all of the, the different aspects of uh, terror and domestic terror. And he was very much, you know, adamant about, oh yeah, like domestic terror is as old as this country. It's, it's long been going on. And the FBI has long had its eye on it. And so, you know, when, when you think about even in works of fiction, um, so in Black Klansman, Adam Driver's character, his previous assignment before uh, that um, assignment depicted in the movie was infiltrating a white supremacist group. And that's not made up. That is a long part of this country's history. And we've had this very strange, strange relationship, I guess, between I guess the, the political face that white supremacy hides behind and white supremacist itself. And I think it's part of this idea of the, the good conservative, the good Republican, like for as much as, you know, we, you know, for as much as in the left, the ima left imagination, like Reagan is the devil, like, you know, even the devil doesn't want to do business with certain people. And like, even, even like your worst enemies doesn't like, Look, like it's it's fine. Like we may not think of black people as human beings, but we're not Nazis. Like this isn't the America we did. In fact, it turns out uh, it, it may maybe it, in fact is. And so I think what kind of and I think Lauren, you brought this up, and, and Will, you definitely brought this up, is this idea of given the power of the state and the ability of the state to inflict really terrible acts of violence. Um, and really to frankly take very aggressive acts against perceived threats that this softness on white supremacy has been 
you know, astounding. And I'll end on this by that I saw a post by a, a Muslim activist friend of mine who pointed out the death of um, Alawaki's uh, son, I believe, in, as collateral damage to a drone strike. And it reminded me of that. I did the reading of it. I read up on, you know, why um, his father was struck at and how he was struck at and the, the justifications for those. And it's funny when you come from a national security background, you're used to these justifications of, you know, in defense of the health and life and liberty of American citizens, this country will do dark things in the night. It will take really strident acts to protect its citizens. And frankly, as, as someone who worked in this kind of area, it's the kind of sin you accept. It's the kind of sin you take on yourself and you accept that you're going to be judged for these actions. You may not believe you are morally clean in this, but you do what is necessary to protect people. And I think at some point, the United States has to think to itself, what are we going to do to stop the threat of white supremacy? How much, quote unquote, free speech are we going to take before we start actually taking the actions necessary. And if the FBI treated white supremacists the way they treated King, if they treated white supremacists the way they treated Fred Hampton, would we still be having this conversation in 2020? I'm not sure we would. And I think when, frankly, when you bring this up to conservative members of the national security establishment, the stunned silence because they recognize or they used to recognize the hypocrisy and the necessity of the state to take those actions it needs to take. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for 2020. It never stops. It never stops bringing the hits, never stops coming up with new ways to surprise you. And, you know, kidnapping governors and taking them into the middle of a lake is the thing now, I guess. So here we are. So, Lawrence, um, that makes me. I think you've highlighted uh, very well the problem um, in systematic racism. And, and I think the, the real question is, how do we address it? And I've been looking at data, uh, voter data um, and attitudes, uh, information about voter attitudes. And I'm starting to really question how far uh, the country is willing to go to rectify these sorts of issues. I mean, you hear from one side has been recently in the uh, the Supreme Court hearings has been you know asking uh, Professor Barrett, um, does racist exist? I think uh, Senator Joe Kennedy said the worst thing you can call America an American is racist. Uh, Donald Trump is running, uh, and one of his messages is, I don't think America's racist. Uh, and, and quite frankly, that position's ahistorical. Um, but uh, I, I question our capacity um, to move forward and act. And I can't imagine what it, what it would look like, right? I, I can't imagine a truth-telling candidate, right? It, it, what if we had a uh, Senator Warren running for president? Uh, would she be leading in the polls? Um, and recently, um, and, and that was a candidate that I definitely supported, um, but recently, 
Uh, I've just been thinking about that. Do we have a capacity to support someone who's willing to um, engage the country in that sort of discourse um, and, and, and not on a incident by incident basis? Um, I mean, even looking back to uh, President Obama, his approval started to drop uh, after the uh, Henry Louis Gates incident. Um, and to me, one of the most disheartening moments of his presidency is when, uh, you know, between the media and, and those who had supported him and started, you know, moving towards the other side, uh, all because he had the audacity to say that race was involved um, in the police stopping a man in his home uh, to arrest that man in his home. Um, which, which is pretty, to me, uh, clear, cut, and dry. Um, and you don't hear any you know, libertarians who have concerns of the, the state overreaching um, or the NRA uh, when it's Philando Castile. You, you just don't see the same sort of concern. Um, and you know, on one hand, you see uh, the protests, Black Lives Matter is, is uh, almost, you know, um, cliche at this point. I mean, it's not as radical as it used to be. And you have certainly a greater awareness, which I think is certainly something. Um, but do we have the capacity uh, for a candidate to run on that message uh, and to win? I mean, uh, right now my vote is definitely no. Um, <laughs> as far as whether or not the capacity is there, um, and I think what you just touched on, AJ, is so uh, is so rich, particularly in light of Black Lives Matter, um, not having the potency it used to. Like I remember, um, so I remember. The, I guess the first time I was made aware of the phrase was 2014 around the Ferguson um, shooting of Mike Brown. And that becoming like uh, a hashtag that was popular, then I understand it. It predates that, but that's when I came into contact, uh, came into awareness of it. And I remember on the 2016 debate stage, it being a question, right? Do Black Lives Matter or do all lives matter? Um, and like some people, you know, kind of hedge their bets. You know, like other people, you know, were politicians were were tap dancing, trying to figure out their way to like say it without saying it. And then you get to um, 2020, and Mitt <laughs> Romney is at marches. <laughs> Black Lives Matter, and you're like, where, where am I? What, what's happening? Uh, and like, when, when I saw him tweet it in the end of the march, I was like, okay, guys, hang it up. We need a new phrase because clearly this one is not is not going to do what we needed to do. And I think that it's a, uh, it's interesting to to America is rooted in white supremacy in a way, and I think for so many people, running for president is such a patriotic act that like. For a lot of people, that feels like it's intention. And it, it doesn't have to be. It, it shouldn't be. I think there's a way to say, uh, I love this country and it's deeply, incredibly flawed. I think those two things can live together. Um, but I, I think for a lot of America, that's not a message they're willing to hear. And, and to your point, AJ, about the situation with uh, Henry Louis Gates, when uh, you know a lot of the unrest and stuff of the summer, people kind of came into firsthand contact with how powerful police unions are, right? Like you go in to make all these changes and actually there is a very well-funded, well-organized entity that's like, you cannot change anything and we will raise Hades if you do. 
And my first thought was we should have known that when the president of the United States, uh, I believe he said it was stupid. They're like, oh, they, they tried to arrest him outside his home and ends up having to call a beer summit, bring the media in, sit everybody down because everyone's so upset. Um, and I'm like, if the president can't say an offhanded comment about something that's clearly actually stupid, then yeah, this uh, this entity has far too much power and far too much weight. Yeah, it definitely felt, I feel like I've been in the US since 20, 2008 now. And it feels like, and before, like it's the same thing in Europe. Like this is, this is not uniquely American, but it feels like the world just collectively goes how much, and I'm going to be specific here, how much anti-blackness are you going to allow to destroy the soul of your country before enough is enough? And everywhere just says, yeah. And that's it. not like, no, no measure of how enough, like no, no question of, oh, we should probably stop this. Like you have, it, it is wild to me that you have Russia, China, Ukraine, other countries interfering in u.s elections you know seizing on the fact that this country is so anti-black how anti-black is it that other countries can use it as like a bat to beat this country over the head with and like no one's batting a night like that's okay like look i assumed that the upside of fascism the upside of nationalism was that the country was like technically strong you know, like the old, like, sick joke, like, oh, at least hit the built roads. Like, at least I thought that happened. Like, whatever, ha it's, sorry, like, I assumed we were going to have, like, competent fascism, not whatever the hell this is. Like, this is, no. And there is a difference there between competent fascism and, and whatever the hell we're dealing with, as you so mm -hmm. aptly put it. Um, and keeping that in mind, one of our leaders attempted, um, if we transition now into I Ain't Sorry, um, to maybe kind of do something about it. Allegedly, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi and Representative Raskin held a press conference last week about organizing a body to uh, invoke the 25th Amendment. Uh, which is the uh, amendment that says the vice president can take over for the president in the in at the point that the president is incapacitated, essentially. So normally uh, the pr vice president can't take over unless uh, the president dies or resigns. But this amendment says like, hey, in the event that all of the or I think maybe two thirds of the cabinet heads agree and the vice president agrees like they can take over for for the president. And so. Uh, Representative Raskin and Speaker Pelosi attempted to, uh, or at least draw, attempted to draw attention to that clause and, and maybe make some fanfare about it. I don't ultimately know what came of it, but if uh, anybody wants to weigh in there as to what, what we think that was strategy-wise or, or thought-wise, well. Yeah, I, so... I've kept reading about this and being like, from so there's two perspectives. I think one from Jamie Raskin's perspective, in 2017, he also had a similar idea. He wanted to come up with an independent commission of former uh, government officials, physicians, etc., to like really. I think Jamie Raskin is a former uh, constitutional law professor at American U. I actually like Jamie Raskin. 
for the most part for some of the stuff he says. I think he's just like a nerd who's like he's been passionate about this for a while. He's like, come on, man, come on, Speaker Pelosi, give me my due. And he's come up with different ideas of it. Um, because I think he has a good point in terms of I think long term. It's interesting that when you look at the 25th Amendment, it does talk about like it's not only a vote of the cabinet members, but also be vice president working with either or both bodies of uh, Congress and the necessity of that. But then he has raises a good question, which is sort of like, how do we in a quote unquote nonpartisan or bipartisan way measure what that means in terms of if a president doesn't have the capacity to serve mentally or physically? Like, what does that even mean? And so he's trying to, I think well-intended and from a legalistic perspective, I can see him wanting to put something forward. But my question becomes for Nancy Pelosi, why are you bringing that up now? Like Nancy Pelosi, I understand that President Trump has COVID-19. I understand that President Trump is under a variety of drugs that may or may not affect his mental state. But we have four, or like AJ's point earlier, more than four years of evidence of he's not in his right mind, right? So what on earth do you think at this point would push enough Republicans above the edge to say, yeah, you know what? I think President Trump actually potentially would not be in his right mind and we would need to remove him. Like at this point, we've seen like there isn't there isn't that line. I think the Democrats keep thinking being like, oh, but if he does this or if he says this, then Vice President Pence or the cabinet or even enough Republican senators would move to remove him. And I don't think that that line exists. So for me, what it does is it makes Nancy Pelosi seem like she's going for a play to question Trump's weakness, which may or may not work. That's one. But then two, it brings the question, the larger question for Democrats around also Joe Biden's health and well-being and when his mental acuity is being questioned. To me, that's not something you want to bring up. Like, I think it was notable that both uh, Senator Harris as well as Vice President Pence avoided this question in the vice president debate. They eluded it completely. And I think it's a good, important question. But I think they did that because I think it's a it's a thing that neither party wants to focus on. And so I question the timing of Speaker Pelosi bringing it up when I really don't think anyone's going to get any more points saying Trump's weak or incompetent. Like, I think the people who think that think that people who don't don't. But I applaud Representative Raskins in terms of keeping fighting for that and asking that for a larger constitutional question, because I do think it needs to be had. Uh, I just don't. I think it was a weird timing um, in terms of where it was for the election. So that's my sort of thought. I think I think, Will, I think you make a great point, uh, especially with respect to, you know, if this were in effect and worked how it was designed, would it even work? Right. I mean, I, I think you definitely see um, folks who are certainly loyal to the president. Um, and uh, I'm not sure our cabinet has the right incentives to do uh, this sort of work to uh, make that sort of determination. Um, I think with respect to the politics, I think Nancy Pelosi is needling the president. She's trolling him, uh, hoping to uh, exacerbate uh, his uh, unwinding. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if that works. Um, I think I do want to push back a little bit on um, why Kamala Harris versus a Mike Pence uh, might want to dodge the question. Um, I actually think it was kind of one would expect someone in, in Mike Pence's uh, position as one who is a um, experienced politician. He's been a congressman for a number of years, a governor and a vice president. Um, if I were on stage, I would certainly want to communicate. Uh, you have nothing to worry. If something happens to President Trump, I'm here and I'm capable uh, to take the mantle. Now, I think with Kamala Harris, um, and this kind of harkens back to my point earlier about what sort of progress is the country ready for? 
I don't think she can make that same sort of argument, despite she's been a senator, despite running, I think, the largest law enforcement agency, second only to the DOJ, um, and being a, an elected district attorney. I think uh, putting all that to the side, I don't think that it's smart politics for her to remind the electorate, um, particularly those Obama, Trump, Biden uh, voters, uh, that, hey, I'm a black woman, I could become president uh, if, uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, the oldest elected president or who would be the oldest elected president is unable to f uh, finish a term. Um, on, on, uh, I think there's another component, too, um, to this 25th Amendment discussion, which is worth exploring. Um, we, we understand that Nancy Pelosi might have political reasons for this, um, but for folks like Jamie Raskin and others who are concerned with reform, what is this supposed to accomplish, right? The, 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 me, the one way we have to remove a president from office is impeachment. And clearly uh, that process needs to be uh, looked over um, and, and possibly tweaked. Um, um, and and I, I think that needs to be the vehicle, right? Because uh, even Trump, he was elected under the rules that we have. And so there is a certain amount of legitimacy there. And um, it's very anti-democratic for a unelected group of whoever a Nancy Pelosi or a Congress would put together uh, to decide that the president is unfit. And there's a difference between being unfit as in uh, declining mentally, um, perhaps you've had a heart attack or literally physically unable to wield the office or the power of the office. That's one thing. But what does unfit mean, right? Um, is that because uh, the president acts rashly, which is arguably one reason why he was elected? Um, is it is it because he's making a decision that folks don't agree with? Um, I, I think that really needs to be fleshed out. And then um, ultimately, um, I, I think that the better action is to figure out how do we make impeachment um, a process that works. All good points. Um, I did want to jump in here for a moment and say that one in the act of full transparency, I did work for Jamie Raskin. Jamie Raskin when I was in <laughs> graduate school, uh, I was he was a law professor and I was the staff assistant in his office. Um, at the time, he was running for Congress, so he was rarely there. But I say that to say I think y'all have described him well here. He's very serious about reform, very much a constitutional professor, but invested in making the Constitution work for everyone. And I do think that's important. What I also will say is that in addition to AJ's point of saying that I do believe Speaker Pelosi was trolling or attempting to exacerbate the president uh, in invoking this amendment, I also think that there is enough uh record or to say that Trump is paranoid and it doesn't take much for him to not trust the people around him. So the notion that mm -hmm. they would be the one to decide his fitness and mm -hmm. things like that, I think the notion of driving wedges there could also be helpful um, or, or advantageous because they're, um, as we know that they, one, a host of people had COVID when he had COVID, have COVID, we don't know. Um, but 
that that I think that there's room if he's looking around over his shoulder saying like, okay, but are y'all really here for me? There's um, a chance that that weighs on him more so than um, uh, than whether or not it actually could work out. And then my final thing, which ended up not working, so it didn't matter, was I also thought that in the event it became a real issue and he was fighting that, he'd have to stay in Washington and not spread COVID to half the country by hosting these big old super spreader rallies. But clearly he decided not to stay in Washington and has been all over the country um, with, I'm sure, COVID heavily in tow. Um, Lawrence, is there something you want to say? Uh, I guess one in, in that vein, Trump believes that sharing is caring, strangely. Two, Nancy Pelosi is crazy like a fox. That is one incredibly talented politician, incredibly talented political mind. Like, I, I completely believe this was a tactical move to throw Trump off balance. Um, cause when, when you think about the number of things she's done that the Twitter left hate and that she's still here standing. Like, think about, like, parts of the Twitter left no longer like AOC because Pelosi somehow managed to, like, drag AOC off, like, knocking her off. Like, that is wild. Like, yeah. Just a, a shout out to Nancy Pelosi. Like, I don't usually agree with much of what she does, but, like, that's one incredible, incredible mm -hmm. politician. I agree with you there. I do think she's exceptionally talented at what she does. I think uh, unlike Republicans, Democrats are an actual coalition. And so I do think it's hard to lead them in Congress. I do think you have a lot of different factions. And so, I mean, there was talk in 18 with like AOC and Illinois Omar and Ayanna Presley coming in that there was going to be this shakeup. And Nancy Pelosi said, uh-uh, <laughs> right in line. And they did. So, I mean, I, I definitely see you there. We're going to go ahead and segue into Drunken Love, where you're going to um, let me know, one, what you're drinking this evening, and two, um, if there's anything you didn't get a chance to say earlier uh, that you've been completely consumed by and think is important to this conversation, I definitely want to hear from you. Um, and so we're going to kick it off with Lawrence. Sure. Um, so I guess the one thing that's really struck me over the past four years is how behind I am on everything, like in the world. Like I was an international studies major. I wanted to be a politics a diplomat for so long, but like I'm so behind on everything. And I feel like the country, this country has, has become behind on things as well. And ironically the UK has as well, which is we've spent so long going backwards. In, in a lot of ways, like, I really do get where the left comes from with the, the Obama critiques, right? Because it wasn't a perfect presidency. There were things he should have done better. But, like, it felt like in 2016, we were on the precipice of doing something truly great, that we were on the precipice of, like, really changing the direction of not just this country, but the way the world goes. Because you have this center-left, government that has been in power for eight years has learned along the way, particularly on things like gay marriage, for example, like it's constantly learning, constantly iterating. I right? think there's nothing more powerful than a government and a system of government that's able to learn from its mistakes and push forward like that. And I feel like the regression 
of the past four years has been so corrosive. Like we should be in a point now where we are really like hammering down on trans rights, for example. Like we have this consciousness around trans rights and this consciousness about fighting for those rights wherever they are that I think has been missing from the past four years. We look at what happened with Libya and, and Syria and back to back where we intervened and things went wrong and we didn't intervene and things went wrong. And we were right on the precipice of a, of a moment to say, what does it mean to protect human rights? What does it mean to protect the rule of law? And how do we move that forward? And we just wasted the past four years on really, really like remedial things. And so it's, that's been tough. And you see like even with this like confrontation with China, like a confrontation probably should happen at some point because you don't want an autocratic country at the top of the, of the, at the top of the world. But, and I was talking with friends on Facebook about this, the way to make that happen is through multilateral means and bringing people together and presenting a united, strong front on this. And you see the same with Iran. And so I think I, I mourn the ability for us as a human race, frankly, to move forward and this, this slide into, into um, nativism and, and populism. And I think the center left, the center needs to have a better answer to populism. And I think the left needs to learn how to harness the passion to win. And I think we just got to do better. And I think that's been, that's really also been on my mind. Like everything in uh, the Nagorno-Kabarak region between Armenia and Azerbaijan, like I just completely passed me by. And I feel like as a, as a international studies major, that's an eternal shame. I will never get rid of that. And like, yeah, so that's, that's mostly it on my end, just this navel gazing white supremacy, anti-blackness is just such a distraction from important things like climate change and like human rights. And today I'm drinking, um, I moved house, so I'm trying to like put something together, a uh, very hipster mason jar with lemonade, um, some Ketitian rum uh, that my lovely mother-in-law gave me. Um, and there was some SodaStream spitzer in there. And before you ask, I believe last time I checked, SodaStream no longer made their products in occupied territories in Palestine. Um, last time I checked, I, that was many years ago. I do not know if that's still accurate. So please don't cancel me again over that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Well, yeah, first of all, that sounds amazing, Lawrence, whatever you're drinking. I'm drinking uh, uh, on sale a bottle of red wine because that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> uh, where I'm at most days. And it's also the debates about oh, the town halls are about to come on, so I'm getting ready for that. Um, but I think the two things that I'm sort of that I want to talk about that I haven't brought up or I think are being ignored are one, I think one thing to really watch on election night is going to be the turnout vote for college students. As a person who works in higher education, I think it's important. Youth vote gets a lot of crap. College vote gets a lot of crap, and as many barriers there are to regular people just trying to vote, college students have it sometimes two or three times worse in terms of just the number of documents they have to provide to prove residency, et cetera. Um, and so in 2014, the college turnout rate was abysmal um, for 18 to 22-year-olds. It was like 14% or something in midterms, and they tripled it or almost doubled it. Um, they doubled it in 2018. 
But with COVID-19 happening, I think what is not being talked about maybe enough is that because most universities are remote or they've not been in person and because mail ballots have been uh, various ways more difficult to get from different states, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what that vote looks like, particularly because a lot of 18, 22 year olds are also considered uh, ideologically a little bit further left than maybe the Biden campaign uh, has been sort of hitting, you know, and about a campaign rightfully so sort of ignored them. But I think they can make a difference in certain swing states. So I'm looking at that turnout um, and ultimately will be curious to see how what that looks like for college students. And I think if they show up, I think um, the rap that college students and young adults don't vote needs to go away. I don't think it's a complete story. But if they don't, I think it can be consequential as well. Um, and then the last thing is about Amy Coney Barrett is that I think everyone, all the Democrats have been pushing away from her emphasis on religion. Uh, and not want to question her faith, but ever since uh, uh, <laughs> Diane Feinstein sort of said the dogma was strongly in you. But as a person who interned at the Baptist Joint Committee and actually cares a lot about the First Amendment and cares a lot about the separation of church and state, I actually think it's really, really important to recognize how she's not only going to shift the court further right on a lot of issues like health care or Roe or everything else, but also this is arguably the last court term is arguably the most conservative um, in terms of rulings handed down for towards the religious liberty argument and not the actually the establishment cause. So like free exercise versus establishment cause. And so what I think that means is my biggest concern is the number of arguments that may reach the Supreme Court that will grant unlimited religious exceptions for communities and states who are conservative and who have dogmatic beliefs and are going to be able to sort of carve out for themselves um, a sort of a little bubble to sort of do and live however they want to, even in the presence of other people. And so I think for me, one thing I wish to ask more was about her views on particularly the establishment free exercise cause, because I do think, I think this one's not happen. Uh, if you look at the Supreme court, I think when I have four Catholic members or so on a body of nine or something like that. And I think um, while that obviously they say it doesn't influence their decision-making, I think it definitely does historically when you look at Supreme court justices influences how they view the first amendment. So I think for me, that's what the two things that are going to get airways, but that's what I'm drinking to tonight. So. Thank you for that. And Mr. Simonton. Oh, Mr. Simonton. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I actually want to tie in a lot of what Will and Lawrence said. Uh, I, I do think, Will, it's, it's, I'm always interested in these, these people who say there's a war on religion, a war on Christianity and Catholics, and there's a war, uh, you know, they're they're winning. <laughs> I mean, you you look at uh, I don't think the Democratic ticket uh, in the past decade uh, has had um, has not had a Catholic on it. Um, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I I do think that I find myself um, ideologically I consider myself a liberal. Politically, I consider myself a moderate. And so, um, what does that mean? Uh, I identify with uh, those on the on the left who, who push the envelope and um, are, are really necessary, as Lawrence was discussing, um, with moving the country forward. Um, and a lot of those liberals are uh, college students, students that are, I mean, I'm a young voter, I'm 28, but uh, even younger than me. Um, and I think it's very important for them to get out uh, and to vote. Uh, but liberals, uh, specifically uh, college age and, co and, and those who are younger, um, can also be the most disheartened and disillusioned by politics. 
Um, and so what I really want to communicate is that uh, your vote matters. Um, and no matter what state you're in, uh, as an example, in 2010, I believe Roy Barnes, he was a Democrat, ran for governor in Georgia. I want to say he lost by like 8 to 10%. In 2014, the next cycle, I, I was part of Jason Carter's uh, gubernatorial race, um, and he lost by, I want to say, 4 to 6%. In 2018, Stacey Abrams lost by, I believe, under 1%. Um, and hundreds of tens of hundreds of thousands of voters were purged off the rolls. Uh, you can just turn on the TV and you see the long lines um, in uh, Georgia polling locations. Uh, and, and the longer lines tend to be in communities of color. And so now you're looking at 2020, where uh, polls show that Joe Biden is neck and neck. And to be honest, that alone, that in itself is a win. Um, because it's Georgia. And so that sort of trend, that blue um, shift didn't happen overnight. Um, and what this means is that one, if uh, a candidate like Joe Biden can win Georgia, uh, if he wins Georgia on election night, then it's probably over, right? You don't have to wait to call the race. This is something that uh, the president needs to win. Um, also, as you're seeing now, the president is spending time and resources in Georgia, which should be a safe um, race for him. And that's money he's not spending elsewhere. And so when you vote uh, over and over and over again, you can really change the dynamics of a race. Um, and, and, and even if we lose Georgia, but Trump's spending money there or other candidates are, that has a real effect on the race, just as the Senate races. And, and if you go down the line, right, uh, may, maybe maybe it's harder um, to, to flip a district at the presidential level, at the Senate level. Um, but what about your mayor's race? What about your state house race? What about the, the state Senate? The, the more local the election is, um, the more those offices affect your everyday life. Literally, the, you know, where, where uh, policy hits the pavement, um, uh, locally, and and the margins are um, are, are lower. I mean, you, a lot of uh, local seats, you know, ten, twenty, a hundred thousand votes can decide a race. And so, I just hope that we can sustain this awareness that we have with this particular uh, life and death election. Um, you know, to those elections that aren't viewed in that way, because. If you have as many people voting in this election who have already voted in future elections, I think uh, young people, liberals, can really uh, leave their mark on our political system. Um, that was great. I want to say for the first time in, I guess, unbossed, unbothered, and unfiltered history, you <laughs> took mine. Um, so... What I will say is, um, echoing a great deal of what AJ said, what I what I would like to highlight is that polls don't account for voter suppression. And that there is a lot of fanfare about um, 2016, the amount of voters who stayed home. Uh, but no one asked them why they stayed home. They didn't say, did you try to vote and couldn't? Did you vote? And then it was thrown out. All, all the record says is that we have a vote for this person in 2012 that we don't have in 2016. And so uh, because of that, I want to say, uh, the 
I think one, if you have the option to vote early, do so. If you have the option to vote by mail, do so. But one of the reasons why I think it's important to vote early is because in the event you get there and get turned around, you still have time. Whereas if you wait till election day, then we we don't know what what could happen day of. Also keeping in mind that in 2013 was when uh, the Supreme Court gutted, I believe it was Section 5, the preclearance of the Voting Rights Act. In 2014, everyone marks that as, uh, what is it, like the six-year itch election. You know, they said that, that was a direct reflection of President Obama. It was also the first election where these voter ID laws post-Voting um, Rights Act came into place. And then we see what happened in 2016 and 18. And so, and so I think that, um, definitely voting, voting early and acknowledging that the polls don't account for voter suppression. And so you shouldn't uh, use that as a position of solace. Um, but also, to be frank, have faith in the process. I do think that um, voting is a an element of our civic engagement. It is not a silver bullet for white supremacy or for all the issues in the world. It is an element. The first option are like seeing who who's in the room to make the decisions. And then we have to regularly engage the people who make those decisions. So understanding that um, election night is by no means a finish line. Um, it's it's the starting blocks. Honestly, it's, it's walking in the stadium. And so um, definitely vote and vote early if you can. And then acknowledge that we still have uh, pressure to apply continuously um, to our elected officials and keeping that, um, I guess like wrapping there one, I want to say I have enjoyed all of you so, so much. I'm glad uh, y'all were able to join me this evening for a non-response to a non-debate. Um, and in the event that people want to reach out to you, um, to either probe further or have, have additional questions, what's the best way they can reach you, AJ? Um, at AJ underscore Simonton, S-I-M-O-N-T-O-N. Sounds good. Will? Yeah, just at W Brummett, B-R-U-M-M-E-T-T on Twitter. Okay, and Lawrence? Okay, I'm uh, at um, C-A-T-F-O-R-D-S, S-I-N-E-S, Captain Finest on Twitter. Um, I should have said my views are my own. They do not affect my professional view. Uh, if you want to find me professionally, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and finally, uh, personal thank you to you, Lauren. I know when you reached out, I was feeling incredibly disillusioned with our political era. And so uh, thank you for encouraging me and creating this space. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up here. You just finished Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. If you want more information on the podcast, feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Lauren Zayu. You can also follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I hope to see you soon on this journey. Thank you for tuning in to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. For more information on Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, or to review today's episode, please follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram, or subscribe to the Lauren Zayu YouTube channel.